Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdslot.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for Nerdsloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it, make me cry happy tears. But seriously though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it. Hey, this is professional cool person Kate Bresnahan and you're listening to Adrian Has Issues. everybody welcome to adrian has issues episode 75 keeping it real part one it wasn't really meant to be a part one but as we explained in the intro to that show my guest daryl frymark and i we were having a really good chat but it was also game seven of the uh, world series which you know daryl being a very big baseball fan even though neither of us are big cubs or indians fans it's like you kind of had to watch it because you know the cubs hadn't been to the world series much less won in god knows how long i think we had said it was what 1908 was the last time they won yeah 1908 so you know they were long over do so it was kind of like you know what i had to respect that because i was kind of in the same boat like i didn't watch the game but i did look at the uh the live score as it was happening so you know the show was very brief and at the same time i had a, a great time chatting with you in case anyone who didn't listen to part one you are a filmmaker a movie producer and you're also the executive editor on a comic book entitled The Devil is Doing Dreary. And, you know, but this time I figured, you know what, we talked a lot about the comic and how it parallels to your experiences in movies. But since I realized, you know, it's predominantly a comic book show, but I do have a really good time talking about movies. So I figured we'd do a little bit more of that today. But please welcome back to the show, Daryl Freimark. Daryl, how's it going, man? Good. It's going great, Adrian. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a wacky week, but I guess almost in a good way, because, of course, it's like just as Thanksgiving was winding down, of course, then it just ramps back up again because, you know, now the next holiday season is coming up and it just doesn't stop. And even for people who aren't big, big shoppers, there's still the thing of, you know, there's families to visit, there's plans to be made. So it's been pretty hectic, but I, I'm having a really good time. It always feels like a really hectic time of year with, you know, all the get-togethers and people coming in town. You know, this week alone, I had somebody in from uh, Canada last night. I had somebody in from LA on Tuesday night. Um, <laughs> we were just making plans for next weekend. We have three Christmas parties on the same night, and it's like, <laughs> can we make all three? <laughs> you know, right? And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because, not for nothing, with your profession, you're probably used to having to kind of you know make quick plans. You know, having to jump someplace. And I don't know how much, you know, buffer you get between the one gig to the next. But, you know, I have a feeling like you're probably used to sort of doing this on a regular basis. A big part of my job is scheduling and rescheduling and, you know, moving things around. And, yeah, as far as uh, from job to job, you know, sometimes things happen, you know, well in advance. Like right now I know almost for certain that I'm going to be shooting something uh, the end of March through the beginning of May. And I can kind of block that out. But, uh, you know often I'll get a call to do something really quickly or, you know, the case with my first movie, we were supposed to shoot it in, I think it was April. And one of our lead actors is also a musician. And he suddenly got asked to go on a Australian tour starting April 4th. So we had to move the entire production up a month. And it was kind of like, you know, here you're, you know, we're sitting there in, uh, <laughs> in the beginning of February thinking, okay, we've got two months to prep for this. And all of a sudden we've got four weeks and we're calling, you know, calling all the other actors and being like, Hey, can you be available a month earlier than we asked? <laughs> um, and everyone was just like, sure. <laughs> Which is remarkable. I feel like if I did that to like a friend of mine, you know, not even having to do with the movies, he'd be like, yeah, I got a better idea. Hell no. You know, it's just yeah. <laughs> like, but again, I guess it's because of movies being what they are for years 
obviously I watched movies, but like any geek or nerd, it's not enough to just like experience something. You have to know all the ins and outs and knowing as much as you can about it. Of course, as you get older and of course, reading the stories behind a lot of the movies that I grew up watching and then even current ones where you realize, yeah, that that movie that it looked like it was done so easily turns out like it was not even necessarily hellish, but, you know, a lot of work went into it and a lot of planning and having to, you know, either do reshoots or, you know, people dropping off a project. So like a lot of things can happen because there's so many moving parts. But again, that's sort of what you do is you deal with all of those and make things work. We were having a conversation last night over dinner. Um, that wasn't the people at my dinner last night. No one worked in the film industry, but we were just talking about how it affects so many people's lives. You know, you watch uh, your favorite TV show and a character gets killed off and you're like, okay, the character's dead now. You have whatever emotions you have, but think about how it affects that real person's life. You know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they were shooting the show in, you know, like The Walking Dead, right? They shoot that down in, in Georgia somewhere. And right. probably none of those actors live in Georgia. None of the leads do. So you know, if they get killed off the show, maybe part of the reason is they want to go spend more time with their families or whatever the case might be. But it's just like how lives are affected or maybe if one character gets killed off of something, maybe you lose another character because of a relationship and suddenly that actor now is out looking for a new job or whatever the case might be. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of real lives are affected. I was thinking about it fairly recently. Um, I was starting to rewatch the Hobbit movies and Guillermo del Toro was originally going to co-produce those movies with Peter Jackson. And, you know, from a fan perspective, being huge fans of both of them, it's like, well, this is kind of a dream come true. Not realizing the fact that, you know, Guillermo pretty much had to go live in New Zealand. And, you know, I think the movie, you know, there was there was some issues, I guess, getting The Hobbit made and different plans about how many movies are going to be. And then eventually Del Toro had to lead the project because I guess it was, at least from my understanding, unless I'm wrong, where things were kind of getting tied up. But yet it was sort of holding a lot of things up. So, you know, unfortunately he had to move on. So, you know, that that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Obviously a guy like Guillermo del Toro, you know, has a lot of things that he wants to do or he is doing. And, um, and sometimes those, you know, certain things will take precedence and yeah, absolutely. A, a major schedule change or delay can affect somebody like that dropping off a project. But an interesting story that I read uh, many years ago was Darren Aronofsky did a movie. I can't remember the name of it now. Maybe you maybe you remember. It was about a. Uh, it was told in like three different time periods, and it was about like a fountain of youth or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It was. Oh, I think I know what it was. It the one with Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. Yes. Oh, was it the fountain? The fountain. Thank you. Great. <laughs> Who's the movie guy here? <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm more of like useless trivia guy, you know, so it's like... <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember, because they wrote a lot of articles about this at the time, but Brad Pitt was originally supposed to play that role. And with Brad Pitt, I think it was like a $100 million budget. And I think they actually went into pre-production. Maybe Brad Pitt was already on location. Maybe they were shooting in... Wherever they were shooting, they're shooting in Australia. They're shooting somewhere far away from LA where Brad Pitt lives. And I think he and Angelina had just had their first kids or like something was going on over there. Anyway, he quit and like it's Brad Pitt, you know, he can kind of do what he wants to do. And I'm pretty sure he got sued over it or whatever the case might've been. But the real thing was that the whole production had to be put on hold. All these people who had, you know, been working and thought they had, you know, jobs for the next four or five, six months, whatever it was suddenly didn't. And then without Brad Pitt and with Hugh Jackman, instead they cut the budget from a hundred million to 40 million and, you know, that's a major difference in budget. And, yeah. you know, this, the things I was reading about it at the time was just that Aronofsky was never able to really make a full shift in how he wanted to make the movie. And so it was like very overly ambitious for a $40 million movie. And, you know, he just, it kind of made it a little bit of a mess. I mean, I kind of liked the movie at the end of the day, but, you know, it, it's, it wasn't what he had hoped it was going to be, and it, it just wound up being a bit of a mess. Right. I think happens a lot. And, you know, obviously, as a consumer and as a viewer, you know, we see the movie kind of like basically the finished product. You know, we think about a lot of ways where we say to ourselves, oh, this movie was bad or this movie was good or this performance was, you know, whatever. But yet mm -hmm. what I don't even think about a lot of times is the fact that how or the reason why 
that is maybe something behind the scenes that we never saw. You know, like you said, when you have a situation like that where your lead actor, you know, especially one such as Brad Pitt, you know, drops off a project, you know, all of a sudden and you lose a lot of money with that. And so now you're kind of, and, and not that Hugh Jackman's a slouch, and I'm not, you know, knocking him in any way, but yeah. No, he's great. Exactly. <laughs> but now that the budget's a little bit different, now you're having to work with something different. Like I said, Aronofsky, from my understanding, is, you know, uh, a very... Very ambitious director, you know, you've seen all of his movies. Matter of fact, he was actually gonna, it's funny you should say Hugh Jackman, but wasn't he also gonna direct, like, a Wolverine movie or something, like, X-Men related at some point? I remember him being attached to, I think, Superman at one point. I don't remember him being on Wolverine, but, and I I could have my stories mixed, but I, I feel like he was attached to direct a Superman movie that Kevin Smith was writing. <laughs> I showed something crazy. But yeah, you think to yourself, okay, yeah, that movie sucked, but it's like, okay, maybe it's not that the story sucked or anything, but yet you're not getting the actual vision. And I don't know if that's something that you come across where the artist, like basically it'd be like if you and I were working on a movie, I'd probably be the guy who's like, you know, this is my vision for how this should play out. But obviously you're the guy that basically has to tell me, yes, you can do this or hell no, you can't do this. Like, okay, you know what? But we also need money for this. And it's like, art doesn't need money, Daryl, you know? (laughs) So you probably get a lot of that, I'd imagine. Oh, absolutely. A big part about being a good filmmaker, really, not, you know, not just my job, but the job of, you know, a director is being able to kind of work with what you have. And sometimes that's what an actor brings on a certain day. Sometimes, you know, that's the clock, right? You know, you, we work on a schedule and can't go overtime, you know, because you, you can't afford to pay everybody overtime. Plus, if you go overtime one day, that's going to push your next day back. Because, you know, if you're, if you're scheduled to finish at 9 p.m. and you finish at 1 a.m., well, everyone's got to then have a few more hours the next day to get some sleep and come back. So, Something that happened with one of my first films, we were shooting a specific day and things were taking longer than expected. And we were coming down to the uh, what was supposed to be the last shot of the day, which was this brawl in a dining room. And had uh, had all these extras and it had stunt coordinators and people had to fight. And at the same time as people were fighting, someone was sneaking out of the room. You had to have two cameras going at once. And, you know, it's a fairly complicated shot. And we were originally scheduled like three hours to get the shot in. And we had an hour left in our day. And I remember telling our director that. And he was like, how are we going to do that? And we got everybody together. And, you know, one of the camera guys said, uh, you know, I'll put the steady cam on, which is kind of a, if you don't know what a steady cam is, it's, uh, it's a way to kind of hold the camera steady while moving. So like normally a handheld camera will give you a bit of a shaky effect, but a steady cam, it's like a giant vest. And then the camera's like attached to like a, an arm that can extend out and, the, you know, people can, like, run or jump up and down or whatever, and it doesn't shake. It's amazing. And it's the, the guys who use who are Steadicam operators are normally very, very fit uh, people. <laughs> anyway, so our, our Steadicam operator said, you know, I can totally get this. I can get the brawl, and then you just have your, your main camera, your camera A, on the guy sneaking out of the back of the room. And we did it in two takes. And it was like, it's like, there's no way we're going to get this. And just that steady cam guy is really <laughs> like, he stepped up and he nailed it. And all of a sudden we're wrapping up and we're out of there on time. And no one, no one thought that was going to happen. Um, so it just, you know, it was a matter of like, we have a clock, we have to do this. Somebody figure this out with a lot of creative people. And, and yeah, and then, you know, that's just a small example, but in five star, you know, you saw the movie at the end of five star, there's a thunderstorm on the beach. Well, you know, we didn't plan for that. That happened. The thunderstorm <laughs> happened. And I, you know, I think it looks great, but it also, man, we have to get off the beach really quickly. You know, up oh, there's thunder and lightning. We got it. Well, let's get out of here before somebody gets killed. <laughs> right. Cause again, it's like if someone gets killed on set, you know, especially during like some sort of, you know, natural disaster or some phenomenon, you're like, look, I mean, that's not even in the budget, but you know, obviously someone's going to have to like sign off on that. And you know, obviously someone's <laughs> liable. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, storytelling wise, you know, it would completely change the trajectory of the movie and it definitely would be talked about, but you know, logistically, that's just not how that works. <laughs> but you talk about all these things and you know it's amazing how much that changed my perception you know and i'll even kick it back to comic books real quick because i think about how many comic books i've read and i said to myself okay this story you know not great or the art is whatever but yet 
you never really know. I mean, maybe the artist or the writer had a really bad flu, but had like deadlines and, you know, wrote it and maybe it didn't come out that well. So it's like, yeah, it may not be great, but there might be real life reasons why that thing didn't work out. And it may not just be because, well, it sucks, but you know, something happened that changed how the product came out. From a critical aspect, it sort of changed how I thought about movies and just art in general. You never really know. I mean, shoot, think about Apocalypse Now. I mean, everybody sees that movie as an instant classic, but then, you know, of course, you know, <laughs> Our Darkness comes out and people are like, holy shit, that went down on set? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, you're dealing with real people and real people have real things happening to them. You know, uh, there was a movie, I can't remember which one years ago, where the the lead actor had, you know, just uh, gotten divorced and it was a comedy and he was depressed <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they could not get a good performance out of him. I can't remember what the movie was, but I think what they wound up doing was like halting production for like a month and telling him to go get his shit together. And, and they came back, but even day to day, an actor can be hung over or whatever the case might be. And, um, it's their job to, to try to turn that on and off when they're on camera and, you know, most actors can and, and do a great job, but it's, uh, you know, there, there's an awareness that everybody on set needs to have of, uh, of how to handle stuff like that. Yeah. And that's something, again, I didn't really think of until a while ago. And even now, and I'm not even going to say the movies because I, I am trying my best. Cause I know there's some that I've seen that are absolute clunkers, but yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I'm sure even if it's not even like the writer or the director, you know, there's all of everybody else on that staff who worked on that movie who I'm sure they didn't go into it wanting it to suck or, you know, it was a job to them. Of so it's like, not. you know, making a movie is a collaboration and, you know, things can fall apart on any level between collaborators. You know, it's my job as a producer to oversee everything and, and make sure that those things don't fall apart. But, you know, certainly the, the bigger the movie is, the more pieces there are to it which also uh gives you more ways to to kind of have things go wrong right so in the case of let's say you know talking of course about criticism i mean do you necessarily engage in that at all you know because i'm sure let's say you worked on a movie and let's say maybe has different thoughts about how it came out so do you at that point then come up with any sort of response or do you just basically be like all right well that's their interpretation because i would see how like actors being very public deal with film criticism but you know you never really hear too much about the producers in that aspect and so i don't know if it was necessarily like deliberate or is it just a matter of you know they just don't engage as far as all that stuff goes you know if i read a bad review or if yeah, I, I guess I guess I've never thought to engage back on anything like that. You know, pretty much it's people's opinions. I mean, if somebody comes up to me and says, "Hey, I saw your movie and I didn't like it for this, this, and this reason," I'm always happy to have any sort of a discussion. But it's a subjective thing, right? right. You know, there are movies that I like that I'm sure you don't, and and vice versa. It, it's funny. There there are things in there are things in all my movies that I don't like, and I'm not going to say what they are. But of course, there are. You know, I'm I, I don't think anybody looks at a movie they worked on and said this is 100 percent perfect in every way. Um, <laughs> there are times that people come up and say, "Oh, you know, I saw your movie and I like this and this about it, but I didn't like this and that about it." And sometimes I'm in full agreement. I might be like, "Yeah, well, I agree with you about what you don't like." and I'll tell you why it turned out that way, you know? So those are private conversations. <laughs> right. Did they ever get shocked? You're like, wait, hold on. You're agreeing with me? I was expecting a fight <laughs> right now. <laughs> you know, I think it's good. I, th I think not being able to take criticism is the worst. And, and you know what? Also, like, I'm a level away from the true creative. Like, I, I am a creative producer. Like, I, I'm totally involved. But I'm not the creative decision maker. So, you know, when the director makes certain decisions... If I disagree with them, I'll let the director know and we'll move forward. And sometimes I get overruled and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> and I've certainly heard from people like, oh, I didn't like this, you know, and I'll be like, well, I agree with you, but the director wanted to do it, you know, their way. Or, you know, on, on the flip side, someone might be like, I love this. And I'm like, wow, I really didn't think that worked. The director really <laughs> that. I, I guess, I guess that worked for you and for the director. That's great. You know? But the the movie that I made uh, most recently, you know, it's funny. It, it really plays to an older audience. So I really like the movie. I'm very proud of it. But when I showed it to my parents or, you know, my cousins out in St. Louis who are in their 70s, they loved it. I mean, like, really loved it. 
And, you know, when I show it to more of my contemporaries, they like it, but not, not to the same level. It's not, you know, it's just, it's a heartwarming story. Like right. <laughs> my, uh, my uncle's girlfriend was like, oh, I was loving all the kissing. And I was like, that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> she doesn't like a lot of kissing, but like that, that never struck me as something that somebody would just like come out of it and just, she was like so filled with like joy and love after seeing it right. for that reason. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> We always argue after the fact about whether or not a movie was good, but yet, you know, when you go in, it's like, okay, you're just doing the work that you're trying to do to the best of your ability. Absolutely. And and it's not even always just to the best of your ability. Sometimes it's to the best of your resources. And your resources aren't just money and your resources aren't just the objects you have. Your resources, you know, often are, are the environment. You know, we shot something one day and uh, it was a daytime shoot and we ran out of daylight. I mean, that's not that, you know, that, that, that happens. That's something that you kind of plan for. And, you know, usually what you're able to do is you find another day where you can do some shooting, you know, and you, you repick up that scene. But uh, in this specific instance, we ran out of daylight. So uh, the next chance we had to go back and shoot the rest of that scene was the last day of the production. And it's the same actor who was a musician He'd already gone on his Australian tour and he he was in the scene, but not like prominent in it. And the only thing we had to have was his hand pulling another person up onto a truck because that happened. Like we had shot him pulling this other person up onto the truck, looking into the truck because once daylight was gone, we could still, if you can imagine, right, we could, we could look into the truck. It didn't have to be daylight for that because it's dark in the truck. Right. But we couldn't look back outside the truck. So we didn't have the shot of the guy being pulled onto the truck. Does, does that make sense to you? No, that makes sense. So we, we had the shot of the actor on the truck pulling the guy in, but we didn't have the reverse shot of the guy being pulled up onto the truck. So all we needed was the actor's hand. So we had to get somebody with the exact same skin tone, and that actor had crazy tattoos on his hands. <laughs> we had to hire that day a makeup artist who specialized in tattoos, to recreate his tattoo on this other guy's hand with the same skin tone as him. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> Even with me telling you that, if you watch the movie is called Allegiance, you watch the movie and and you you see that scene, you'll never see that. You're like, even looking for that, even if I told you exactly where it was and I show you that hand, you'll never be like, oh, that wasn't Bow Wow's hand. You'll just be like, yeah, no, it looks exactly the same. But those were the measures we had to we had to do on that day, you know? And that, you know, whatever we had to spend that day for the extra makeup artist and, and the, the guy with the, the right color hand and, and all that, that was money we had to find from somewhere else. But, you know, it was, it was doable. <laughs> right. Those are things that just happened. Again, those are things that you never would have thought of. Uh, matter of fact, it was, I think, in Beverly Hills Cop 3, the scenes where Eddie Murphy was talking to Bronson Pinchot's character, where supposedly Eddie Murphy was not in a shot at all. And I guess they used a stand-in. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's basically just a matter of these reaction shots, but they never actually filmed it together. And you're like, huh. You know, like, that's kind of funny, but at the same time, you're like, well, that's kind of what happens. Sometimes you have to do things like that in order to make the scene work. But, you know, that's just probably got to be a weird request to do where it's like, all right, uh, we can't get to him. So, like, all right, so how do we make him look like the other guy? I did a short film one time where I can't even remember what the situation was, but uh, we had finished with a bunch of actors. We were done with them and we had dismissed them for the day. And then somebody realized that something else was happening in the room at the same time would have the the timing of it would have still seen the last of those other actors walking out of the room. It's hard to describe, but basically, like, we just didn't realize that at some point there was a camera set up that was going to catch the door and the door should have been swinging closed at that moment for the timing to work based on how the dialogue was set up. So. You know, you're like, this. that, that person's not even going to be in focus. You just need somebody who's like a similar height wearing the same outfit. And that was me. So I put on those clothes and I walked out of the door three times while they, you know. <laughs> and it's like, I don't even remember if it wound up in the film or not. But yeah, it was just one of those funny things, which is why you have to do a shot list, you know, and look at what all your shots and setups are going to be on the day because you have to know what could possibly be in a shot, you know, it's often why, especially on bigger budgeted things, they'll pay their extras to just like be there the whole time. Cause you know, they might be like, Oh yeah, that guy was in this one scene. And if we're then, you know, at the pizzeria across the road, he would still be here, whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. 
So, uh, yeah, you know, certainly the more money you have, the easier it is to make sure that everybody's kind of standing by just in case something like that comes up. Also, it's why you want to really plan things out well so that especially on a on a smaller budgeted thing, you want to plan things out super well so that you don't wind up saying, oh, wait, we're supposed to have that guy in this scene, but he's not here today. I'd imagine that to be a producer, if you're not detail oriented, you probably wouldn't work out. Right. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have to be and you have to. And you have to trust your collaborators. You know, you have to trust that everyone's going to be just as detail-oriented. Otherwise, it's going to wind up being sloppy on some side. Right. And obviously, once the movie comes out, everybody's seeing that. You know, of course, you seeing every step of the way is probably extra cringeworthy if things didn't work out that way. So, of course, you know exactly how everything worked out. And, you know, hopefully people on the other end don't notice it because, you know, you know, you see a lot of movies, low budget or otherwise, where, you know, those things where people are picking out the mistakes and things like that. And you're saying to yourself, well, it's like, well, how did somebody miss that? But yet again, if you're working on a set, I mean, shoot, so many things are happening. You'd be surprised of how much you're maybe overlooking. So you really have to be on top of your game. But again, which is why you have so many people and you all have to be diligent. You know, you have a, most films, or at least every film I've been on has an assistant editor that will take the footage at the end of the day and start assembling it. So you can come in the day, the next morning, uh, the director, the producers, you know, whoever else is part of that creative team and watch what you shot the day before. You know, basically the, the assistant editor will take what he or she thinks is the best take of each scene and just, you know, string it together. Well, that's kind of the uh, the concept of dailies, right? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. And that's really a good plan if you're shooting, you know, even like, let's say in the case of a podcast, you know, you record and you think something doesn't sound right. You would hopefully stop, you know, maybe try it again because then otherwise it's like, all right, well, I'm just going to record and assume everything went according to plan. What if it didn't? What if it sounds terrible? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because someone obviously has to then make sure that everything's working. So, yeah, it's the same premise. And the thing is, you can always, you know, you can reshoot something if, if everyone's still there and on set the next day, you know in hairspray in the the final kiss at the end of the movie we reshot that like i was on set the day that we shot the original kiss and you know it was it was late at night it was a long day it just i think everyone was just tired maybe the room was cold i don't remember <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a nice kiss but when everyone looked at the dailies it was kind of like yeah no this is the last shot of the movie it needs to be more than just a nice kiss so we reshot it but everybody was still around like it wasn't like three months later and, you know, then have to spend whatever amount of money to, to bring everybody back. It's like, okay, this didn't work. Okay. What day can we reschedule this kiss for? <laughs> <laughs> and you basically had to pull all these strings just to get seconds worth of material together. And that's probably super frustrating. Yeah. I mean, again, on a movie as big as Hairspray, that's not a problem because, you know, you, you build in lots of extra time and, and you have everybody around. But with my independent films, uh, yeah, it, it, when you're having to do stuff like that, when you're having to reshoot something or move things around, that can get frustrating and difficult. And we shot a film in New Jersey and we were supposed to shoot a scene in a kitchen. And the, the locations people had gotten a restaurant that had gone out of business, but they contacted the owner and the owner was like, yeah, of course, you can shoot in my kitchen. No problem. And we're like, great. So it was the last shot of the day, and we, we send over our electric crew about 30 minutes before everybody else goes in so that electric can start to set things up. And we get a phone call, and they're like, uh, there's no electricity in this building. You can't plug in stuff if you don't have a generator. Well, why, why is that? Well, of course, the restaurant's out of business, so why would they be paying their electrical <laughs> bill? But nobody had thought about that. So suddenly, that was the last shot of the day. We just ending an hour early, which, you know. I'm sure the crew is happy about, but I'm not happy about it. I, I paid for that extra hour. Nobody's working now. And now I've got to find somewhere else to stick that hour in. And what it wound up being was that we wound up sticking that onto the end of our last day, which then winds up being an overtime day. So it totally costs, you know, the production money. And because, <laughs> because we had to stick it on the end of the last day, one of our actors was in like the first scene of the day and then wasn't in again until this last shot. Oh, and so man. he had like, eight hours of downtime and and you know it wasn't like he was home we just had him in like a room he was napping he was reading he was frustrated and uh <laughs> and you know then he comes and he and he shoots it and he said to me at one point he goes i bet you this doesn't even wind up in the movie <laughs> you know what he was right we cut it we didn't put it in the movie but there but it you know cost us money and 
the poor guy to sit around for eight hours. All he wanted to do was go home and be with his family. And uh, I felt like when we decided to cut that, it was the right decision. But I was like, oh, man, I feel so badly about that day. <laughs> I don't know if you would agree, but is that one of those situations where, you know, it's kind of like the cost of doing business? Like these are the things that just sort of happen? Absolutely. The actor probably doesn't think that, but yet, you know, as the producer, you're probably like, look, I mean, that sucks and you feel bad about it. But at the end of the day, might as well do it just in case you need it. Otherwise, you know, if you didn't have it, then things would, you know, be much worse. Absolutely. Yeah, you're 100% correct. And that's all of it is the cost of doing business. But you also want to be the best possible planner you can be. So when you're setting out to make your movie, you're looking at your script, you're looking at your locations, you're putting your schedule together, and you're thinking and you're rethinking, what do I need? And you want to get everything you think you might need just in case. But, you know, what, what can I figure out actually definitely won't work for whatever the reason might be. And, you know, sometimes you, you make those realizations like, you know, I don't think this scene works anymore. Or, you know, these two locations look so similar this is going to feel redundant or whatever the case might be. And then you, you make those decisions and you, and you cut moments out. Again, that's, you know, that's my job. That's the, the job of, of a good director and, you know, all of us collaborating on that. It saves your budget. It saves your time. You know, my first film we shot in 22 days and huh. there was a whole set of flashback scenes that we shot over the course of a day and a half. And uh, maybe it's even over two days. <laughs> it might have been over two days. I think a day and a half or two days, whatever. But it was all these flashback scenes. And we screen the movie in a test screening. And somebody raises their hand and says, uh, you know, the flashbacks totally take me out of the movie. It's a really intense movie. And you cut to these flashbacks. Why don't you just get rid of the flashbacks? I, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to know that. I, th I think we know that backstory without having to see it. And we said, huh. So we just take out the flashbacks and we test screen it to a new audience the next day. So did it work out or? Yeah. And the new audience is like, you know, it's a, at the end of the movie, we're like, okay, any, anybody have any questions, thoughts, whatever. Nobody brings up not understanding anything. So then we started asking specific questions. Um, somebody tell me who Septon's father is. You know, people got it. Okay. Uh, what can you tell me about Septon's relationship with his fiance? And people got it. And we're like, would anybody like to see a scene with Septon and his father? No. Oh, wow. Would anybody like to see more of the fiance? No. And we're like, oh. So we cut all of that. You know, I was like, wow, well, there, there goes two days of shooting. There goes, you know, a whole actor. The actor who played Septon's father is now no longer in the movie. You know? um, the fiance was still in the movie, but I mean, two thirds of her work, which and her work was great. She was great. But two thirds of it got cut. And it wasn't her fault at all, you know. And we felt terrible telling her. But we were like, look, you did a great job. This has nothing to do with you. This is our fault. We didn't envision that the flashbacks weren't going to work. Yeah. But I wish I had envisioned that. I wish I had figured that out on the script level because that would have saved us a lot of stuff. This kind of leads into something that I actually wanted to ask you last time, but, you know, we ran out of time. Where do you personally see film you know as far as an industry and even as a medium just going in the next couple of years you know a lot of studios arguably some would say that they're chasing trends you know like as far as surefire successes versus anything that would some would consider risky like an independent film so i mean i guess where do you see like in the future where do you see movies going from here on it's a really good question and it's something that you know my colleagues and i talk about all the time I don't have like an answer answer, you know, because I, I really, I really truly don't feel like I know. I mean, I don't think any of us know, but I really feel like a lot of things could happen. What I'd like to continue to believe is that good stories will always find a home. Right. You know, that if you have a good story and you make a good movie, people will watch it regardless of where they watch it, on what device they watch it, how much they pay to watch it. As an independent producer, I just have to continue to figure out how to make, you know, stories that people are going to want to go see and how to make them at a price point that will allow my investors, my financiers to make their money back without it having to play in tons of theaters or, you know, be a huge hit. It just needs to be a good movie that people can watch somewhere. You know, that, that's, that's always been my feeling and continues to be my feeling. As far as the studios, yeah, the studios are taking fewer and fewer risks. I mean, they're big business. They're mostly, if not entirely, publicly owned. I mean, they probably are all publicly owned and, you know, and they're owned by giant corporations now. 
Universal is owned by Viacom, and I can't remember all the all all the ones. But anyway, the studio is a big business, and therefore they take fewer risks. So if people are going to keep going to see superhero movies and keep going to see, you know, big action movies with Tom Cruise or The Rock or whomever, then yes, studios are going to continue to do that because they're not going to take the risks and. Well, where does that leave like your interesting, thought-provoking dramas? Right. And it leaves it to the risk takers. And where do you find those risk takers? And I think you'll find those with more independent money. And independent doesn't necessarily mean, you know, small or, you know, your grandfather's, uh, you know, retirement funds. You know, <laughs> there, there are plenty of independent films being made for uh, lots of money. I mean, the, the Wolf of Wall Street was, if I'm not mistaken, made... Uh, with independent money, I think it was money out of an Arab country. But yeah, you you basically find your risk takers and you make a movie that is going to find an audience because it's a good story. And right. again, you know, you just have to measure what your risk is and what you think your audience is going to be. You know, I don't I, I feel like I danced around that question a little bit. And I realized as I was asking it, maybe it's kind of maybe phrase poorly the only reason why i ask is that i'll put it to you this way as somebody who grew up pretty much like from the time i was three years old the first movie i ever saw in theaters was die hard so you saw one of the best movies ever you, you started your bar <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's kind of like a selling point for me but granted it was probably more of the fact that well you know we didn't afford babysitters but my dad was the type was like look i'm gonna see terminator 2 opening weekend and look i know you're only in first grade but you're gonna basically watch you know robert patrick and arnold schwarzenegger fight each other and watch linda hamilton like basically disintegrate in this one dream Dream sequence you know and it ruined my life you know in a weird way because i remember having nightmares for it but at the same time it's like holy crap this movie's amazing <laughs> <laughs> but you know like i was pretty much raised in a movie theater and as we got older my dad and i you know maybe not much now only because well i'm not local and you know we're both unfortunately the same person where it's like look we see, could see this movie together but we're kind of lazy um <laughs> But yet, that's where I grew up, and that's kind of where, in a lot of ways, I learned those weird life lessons. And I guess, personally, that was sort of how my father and I, and even now, like, we'll still text each other, you know, talking about movies and the trailers we've seen and the actors who are attached to certain projects and how excited or not excited we are about them. But then I realized that, though that's my experience, that doesn't necessarily you know everybody's experience because you know there's a lot of people who maybe didn't grow up in a movie theater because my best friend and i we kind of go into the whole thing where you know he didn't grow up really going to the movies so you know as he got older and sort of watching movies you know he was more the person who would rather watch it you know on demand or maybe let's say amazon video or things like that and you know it's not a right or wrong but again i guess maybe it's just uh you know matter of generations or traditions and things like that so that's kind of, I guess, where I was really coming towards as far as like, you know, where futures of movies are going, because, you know, I've noticed a lot of movies may not even necessarily get a major theatrical release, but then find a very big home. But I guess as someone who's been as long in it, do you feel that the formatting kind of changes the vision a little bit? Because I know very people are very strict about it's like, you know, movies should only be shot in film, should be theatrical or, you know, I guess as a producer, you probably then have to roll with the punches and say, like, look, these are the times, you know this is kind of how people are consuming their art now you have to at least somewhat cater to the consumer if not entirely you know i think there's an argument for saying the consumer doesn't necessarily know what they want you have to create something so that the consumer wants it right uh you know so if quentin tarantino wants to shoot something on 70 millimeter or ang lee's new film um billy's long walk or some, something to that effect you know they shot it like some crazy frame rate and the, you know, the, they're probably thinking as artists, well, now, you know, people will come to see this because it's different. It has to be seen this way. But it's also going to be available other places. And, I you know, for me as a producer, I'm going to make something that will look great in a theater. But that if somebody enjoys watching things on their phone, it'll it'll look fine on the phone on their phone, too. Um, to that effect, I think that you you can't force people to to just go see things in theaters if they are now becoming more used to having other options. And one of the things that I think we as an industry are starting to see a lot more of or becoming more cognizant of is that if you put something out into the theaters and three months later you make it available on demand or whatever, you need a new marketing campaign because 
you know, people aren't going to be like, oh yeah, that movie three months ago. No, now you've got to market again. But if you put it onto the theaters and you put it on demand at the same time, well, now you have one marketing plan and also your social network, you know, can do part of the job. Cause look, if, you know, I'm in New York city, I can go see a movie and get excited about it and I can post on my Facebook and, you know, many of my friends who live in smaller towns who maybe, you know, don't have access to those movies you know, or don't have access to cinemas or have, you know, kids and, and can't get out or whatever the case might be, they might be like, oh, Daryl loved this movie. Well, let me see if it's available on demand. Let me see if it's available on Amazon or whatever the case might be. Right. And then they're watching it. So there's a, you know, I, I think that the industry as a whole is realizing that there's a lot of advantages to that. Yeah. Now, where the pushback comes from is the exhibitor, right? Your, your movie theaters, they're going to say, wait, 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 like, we understand what you guys are saying, but if, you know, if the movie is playing in, in my movie theater, I don't want that couple to be like, I'd rather, you know, the couple that lives three blocks from the movie theater say, I'd rather sit on my couch and watch it on demand when, if it wasn't available on demand, they come to the movie theater. So theaters are saying, no, we have to have that three month window or two month window or whatever it is. And that's been a lot of uh, what the argument is and how to, how to deal with that. And literally minutes before we got on this phone call, a headline popped up that said Universal is talking with theater chains about doing more movies on demand simultaneously to their theatrical. And I mean, it's been an ongoing discussion. I didn't get a chance to read that article. I don't know exactly what's progressed or not. But yeah, I, you know, as far as the future of movies, yeah, I think that all movies in the not too distant future will be available on all devices and in the theaters at the same time. And the consumers will decide how they want to watch them. And maybe in the theaters will offer certain extras. You know, maybe there'll be a much higher price point. Like, hey, this is in theaters. So if you're going to watch it on demand, you're going to, you're going to have to pay $10. And maybe, maybe the theaters get a percentage of that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm making this up here. <laughs> this is, you know, I'm just thinking it's like a theater owner, but maybe, maybe that's the conversation Universal is having with, you know, the Regals and the AMCs and maybe, Maybe the Regals and AMCs are saying, fine, if you have to have it that way, then we want a piece of that on demand. We want 10% or whatever. Um, I don't know. Right, which could be, you know, a whole other can of worms being opened up. But it, it's funny. Remember, what movie was it that, uh, was it Bubble? Was it Soderbergh, I think? Was that one of, like, the first I remember hearing about a movie that got released theatrically, but also home video at the same time. And just being like, at the time, it just sort of blew my mind. It's like, why would anybody do that? But it's funny, what was weird, you know, 10, 15 years ago, now you're thinking about it, because again, as someone who grew up in a theater, yeah, I mean, I'll probably go, and thankfully, I'm in an area where it's not too hard to go to, like, let's say, Alamo Draft House. I thought they were opening one up in the city or in Brooklyn. They did, yeah, they, they, opened, they opened one up in Brooklyn uh couple weeks ago oh okay awesome why are i not there right now but yeah but and that's the <laughs> other thing too where theaters in order to be competitive have to then offer something a little bit different but i guess that's kind of more of on that end but from a creative aspect i'm always interested in wondering okay how does that change how you shoot the movie even just formatting but also just like okay how do you approach it because you know you're used to things being presented on a large screen but you also have to consider the fact that there's, you know, a large body of people who may just be watching this at home. I, I don't know. I, I think that probably some people do take that into consideration and maybe we all will be more and more moving forward. I, I produced four feature films and in the case of all four of them, we knew that they would have a limited time in theaters and, you know, 99% of the people who saw those movies would see them at home. But we wanted it to look its absolute possible best for the theaters. So you make it for the theaters. You know, you do a 5.1 surround sound mix of the movie, you know, knowing that most people don't have 5.1 surround sound at home. But for those people who do, and for when you're in a movie theater, you hear it on your 5.1, you get the best possible sound. So, yeah, I mean, I think you always want it to, you, you always cater for it to look its best in its best environment. I don't know how you'd cater to something different. I don't know how you'd cater to a smaller screen per se. 
I remember Father's Day 2015. I was actually at a convention and I'm basically speeding down a road in a rental car <laughs> trying to get back to my dad's house so I don't miss like Father's Day. And the hook was, okay, you know, you could come over to the house, to, you know, to have dinner and whatnot. I was like, all right, it's fine. But his ankle was, you want to come to the house and watch Prometheus on Blu-ray in 5.1? I'm like, why didn't you just say that the first time? <laughs> so, you know, that's also like the technical aspect of movies, which is always something that I love. But there are people who don't even think about the technical aspects of movie and why, you know, home studios are important as well as also theaters who have the ability to present the movie regardless of what it is. Even if it's like drama, you know, it should still look its best. And that's a very good point that you made. Probably the majority of the movies I watch are at home. I mean, maybe it's 50-50 home and theaters. And I certainly try to watch the bigger, more effects-driven movies in theaters. But, uh, you know, I often will watch a small drama in a theater. And, uh, yeah, I still love the whole idea of, you know, the lights going down, the giant screen, and it looking beautiful up there on the screen. And I have a very nice TV, but I don't have a great sound system at home. And I, I, I know that it's not presented as well there. But if it's a good story... The technical stuff does kind of fade away as soon as you get into the story. That's true. So, I mean, I watched a movie, a almost three-hour independent film uh, last Saturday night, and I started watching it at like 8 o'clock at night, and I was thinking, oh, man, a three-hour indie drama. I hope I don't fall asleep. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I'm watching it on a Saturday night, at, you know, starting at 8, and it was, the story was riveting. It didn't feel like three hours. I couldn't believe, you know, when I looked up at the clock, and uh, I never felt sleepy, and would that have played really well in a movie theater? Absolutely. Did I enjoy it immensely on my television? Did I, you know, was I fully sucked in? Totally. You're telling a good story. I, you know, I still think that's the absolute most important thing. Right. And I hope that's the part that stays. And especially with independent movies, because again, I love my big budget effects driven just these giant like boffo films where it, I'm just completely sucked in. But yet, I still love, you know, something that's very story driven, something that's just, you know, a, a, a character study. And I dig that. And there's a place for both. So hopefully with the changing of times, you know, it's not like a case of theaters die out because I think there's just something about that experience that, you, it, you know, it's hard to replicate. And, you know, I've tried, but it just doesn't work out. Not unless you're somebody who has a movie theater in your own home, which, I mean, how many of us actually have one of those? I think one of the reasons why theaters won't ever really die out is that people still want to go out and do something. Like, when you have kids, yeah, sometimes it's a lot easier to stay at home. Sometimes it's cold out. <laughs> sometimes you just want to be on your couch. And those things will always be the case. But also sometimes you just want to go out. And when you want to go out, what are your options, right? You know, you go bowling. You could go have dinner. You could go to a movie, you know, ice skating. You know, the weather's nice and goes, you know, sit in a park, whatever, you know, there, there are a lot of options, but one of those options is, is movies. And I think that people love doing that. Uh, and I think they always will, you know, maybe there'll be fewer theaters, maybe weekday nights will be harder and harder to drag people to theaters. But I think your Friday, Saturday, Sundays, those, the theaters will always have people coming. It's also something where you can just, you know, you can turn off and just allow yourself to get sucked into a movie. And I, I think that a lot of people want that as well. They want to just be able to kind of turn their minds off and be entertained. And while you can do that at home, for sure, it's very easy to, to get pulled away from that, you know, whereas when you're in a movie theater, you're kind of forced to be quiet. Exactly. Which is just a nice way of keeping me from looking at my phone constantly, which I know I'm notorious for that. <laughs> when I watch movies at home, sometimes I'm looking at my phone, but my phone does not leave my pocket in a movie theater. I would, would never take on my phone and the few people who do i find that to be pretty rude <laughs> and i hope that that never becomes a real trend <laughs> <laughs> i hope not to and again i know i've done it a few times so i can't even necessarily knock those people but Darryl, <laughs> thank you so much man i'm so glad we got to do this again because this was a lot of stuff that i want to cover the first time and yeah so i guess we could say this now um holy crap the cubs won <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> didn't see that one coming <laughs> last time we talked you know, the, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series since 1908, and we were sure Donald Trump would uh, no longer be in the news. And now he's our uh, president-elect. The Cubs have won the World Series, and uh, I guess the, the apocalypse is about to happen. Yeah, which, <laughs> go figure, the Cubs were the ones that went 
we should have realized that as soon as the Cubs won the World Series, we should have been like, oh, wow, now Trump's going to win. And I was happy because I was like, oh, good for them. You know, they held out this long. And I'm like, oh, God, what if that was just some weird time travel thing where it's like they were supposed to lose? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but before you go, like, please let everybody know where they could find you and more of your work. Absolutely. So uh, we'll start off with the comic book that we didn't discuss at all on this on this podcast. But listen to the first podcast because we did discuss it there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Devil is Doing Dreary can uh, be bought on our website, thedevilisdoingdreary.com. You can follow us on Facebook at The Devil Is Doing Dreary. You can find me on Facebook and become my friend. I'm open to the public. I'm very social. Uh, my name, again, is Daryl Freimark, F-R-E-I-M-A-R-K. My movies, well, you can see Five Star on Netflix. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can see Allegiance, I believe, is still on Netflix, although I think uh, I think it may be just a few more days. So, you know, I'm sure you can find Allegiance on iTunes and, and other, you know, Amazon and places like that. And uh, my movie, Some Velvet Morning, is on Amazon. My latest film, A Rising Tide, uh, I hope to be able to report some good news soon. Um, we don't have a, we don't have anything official yet, but if you follow me on Facebook and if you follow a rising tide on Facebook, you'll, uh, you'll get all that information when it's available. And check out five star. Matter of fact, I rewatched it again after our last conversation and it's magnificent. Uh, Primo incredible. Primo really is. Thank you, Adrian. I, I appreciate that. And, um, I'm gonna let Primo know that you gave him a shout out. It'll definitely make him feel good. It is a really good movie, and I'm not going to spoil the opening, but like that that opening scene, it's like, wow, that hits. And you know, Adrian, it's funny you mentioned that, just going back to earlier in our conversation, in the original script, that opening scene took place further into the movie, and it was a suggestion that we were given in one of our test screenings, and it was something that Keith, our, our director, didn't originally want to do, and then he moved that to the opening scene, and once it was there... It was so obvious it needed to be there. And when we got accepted into the Tribeca Film Festival, the director of the festival, Jenna Terranova, called me and Keith. And the first thing she said was, I watched that opening scene and I paused the movie and I called my partner and I said, put this movie on right now. <laughs> nice. It's so amazing, right? Because it wasn't it was it was shot to take place three quarters of the way through the movie. I would almost be willing to say that, like, that could have actually just been a movie. Like, you know, opening credits, that bit, and then roll credits again. And, like, that probably would have been, like, just as powerful of a short film. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. This will do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerd Sloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com. <laughs>